13, I started what I consider my number one drug of choice, which is relationships uh, okay. and women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Pussy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> um, Pink dope. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Because, you know, I started to learn that young. Like, oh, you think I'm cute? Oh, you think I'm funny? Oh, you think I'm sweet? I must be. I didn't know people even liked me because I didn't like myself. Right. Welcome to the podcast, Conduct Unbecoming, Stories of Addiction and Recovery. I'm your host, Benjamin D., and each week I get to interview someone from the recovery community. This week, it's one of the coolest people I've ever met in the fellowship, just a genuinely good person that I've had the pleasure to walk this journey with, Britt B. Britt shares with us two raw stories about death. One, during active addiction, where a botched suicide attempt propelled her into treatment. The second story of death, which happens during her recovery, proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can stay clean through absolutely anything. Britt brings to the podcast hope, insight, recovery, and one of the freshest fade haircuts I've ever seen. Now that's a shout out to her barber, James, at Sebastian Grooming Company in Westchester, Ohio. Go check him out. Enjoy. All right. Hey, everybody. I am with my friend Britt B. Like, How long have we known each other? 10 years, maybe? No, it would be March 2016 was the first time I met you. Really? Yeah. I feel like I've known you way longer than that. Yeah. March 2016. So, okay, so six years. Um, Yeah, because my daughter was born in June of 2016. Yeah. All right. And so the memory I have is, um, and this might not have been the first time we met. I don't think it was the first time we met, but I have the memory that we were in the basement at Centerville, and you had come up to me and made a comment about, like, Pittsburgh Steelers or something like that? Yeah. What was the scenario there? Had you already been to meetings at that point? Yeah. um, Actually, there's three of you, and you're one of them is the reason I came back. Mm. So I came in March, and I was in withdrawal when I was at the meeting. Really? And your shirt, (laughs) uh, you were sharing about having a baby. Mm. Um, Another uh, addict's shoes, um, who unfortunately is no longer with us. Um, and another addict who came up and gave me a self-acceptance IP. Um, <laughs> I have a guess who that was. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was the first time. And then I didn't come back until August. Okay. And that's when we were in the basement. In the basement. Mm-hmm. And that other meeting was at Centerville, too? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's cool. Yeah, I can remember. Yeah, because I, I remember you coming up to me and saying something like, hey, I remember you. You had the, the Steelers shirt on or something like that. So Yeah. Absolutely. I was, I was real quiet at that first one. I feel good. I was embarrassed. Yeah. I didn't want to be there, you know, so I just kind of sat in the corner. Yeah. Yeah, I feel you. I think that's common. Yeah. This is a, uh, I say it's a controversial question, but it's only controversial because I make it controversial <laughs> is what I'm starting to realize. But AA or NA? NA. NA. Narcotics Anonymous. Okay. So in the previous podcast, I kind of got on a soapbox about uh, differences and language and things that bug me about each fellowship. And so not going to go into all that, but suffice it to say that, and I mentioned this in other podcasts, that if it wasn't for 12-step programs, if it wasn't for Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't think I'd be here. Exactly. Agreed. That's your experience as well? Yes. Um, I didn't really know much about Narcotics Anonymous. I I didn't even know it existed. Yeah. Um, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous in my 20s, like 25 years ago. And um, but because of them, 
is how I ended up knowing about Narcotics Anonymous. So back in March of uh, 2016, um, so you're dope sick. Did you go to treatment or anything at that point? No. I went. To, I ended up going to treatment in July, mm-hmm. but at that point, no. I didn't. Because I, I still thought I could do it on my own. Right, yeah. Like, what prompted you that day, that Monday, to, to go to a meeting? If I remember right, it was just, I kept, man, I kept going through withdrawal over and over and over. And I was just so tired of being sick. Yep. And um, that's when someone said to me, like, uh, from the other fellowship, like, you know, they have um, Narcotics Anonymous. And and that's how I got that meeting. And I thought, okay, it just I had enough willingness and enough desire to get up and go to that one meeting. I didn't go back, but thank God. Right. Because once I did go to treatment, I knew that meeting was there Mm -hmm. and you guys were there. And that's how I came back. Prior to checking out Narcotics Anonymous, you said you were going to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, What prompted that, checking out those meetings? So in my 20s, I have been to therapy all my life, Mm -hmm. on and off, on and off since I was 13. And um, I was seeing a therapist. I was probably about 23. And um, she's like, I I think you have a problem. And I thought (laughs) she was crazy. (laughs) I'm like, I'm 23, and I like to have fun. I do not have a problem. (laughs) And she just flat out told me, I won't see you anymore Hmm. unless you go to six meetings. Uh, So I agreed. And um, I went to some meetings then. Of course, I sat back and I thought, I don't belong here. <laughs> At that time, my, my brain wasn't capable to relate. Right. I'm like, I don't belong here. But I still went. Yeah. A lot of the people go to therapy and thinking, like, I'll, ju- you know, I'll just go to therapy. That'll fix it. And then almost without exception, I hear people say, my therapist said, you got to go to a meeting. Yeah. You know, that's part of the deal. You're going to have to go to meetings too. Like we can't do this without the help of like, you know, some sort of 12 step fellowship. Yeah. So then in, in July you did go to treatment. Yes. <clears throat> Was that the only time that you went to treatment? Yes. Okay. One and done. Wow. Yeah. So you told me a story a while ago and it stuck with me that when you were in the parking lot of treatment, you had the NF song paralyzed mm. playing. And you said you put it on uh, repeat and you were just crying, contemplating going into treatment or just not wanting to. Or how did that story go? It stuck with me because I like that song a lot. And every time that I've been in treatment and they have music therapy, I pick that song. And I think of you. That's really cool you remember that. That that touches me. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was the night before. So I had already agreed to go to treatment. And it was about 11 o'clock at night. I put that song on repeat and I sat on my front porch. Mm. But I literally listened to that song until 4 o'clock in the morning. I mean, however long that is. I mean, 100, 200 times. I don't know how long a song can play that long. Um, Because I never related to a song more in my whole life. Um, But I just, like, I don't know what was happening other than a surrender um, and some acceptance. Yeah. All right. So we're going to get into the first story that you have. Titled this one, By Society Standards. I believe the core of my sickness stems from my sexuality. Um, usually I don't have to explain to people, but since you can't see me, (laughs) I'm gay. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I grew up, um, the same as I am right now. Uh, and by what I mean by that is by society standards, little girls should have long hair. Little Mm -hmm. girls should wear dresses. And, um, you know, a lot of people ask for my experience on coming out to my family. Like, how did you tell them? I never did. Like, I don't remember ever sitting my family down because they knew, Mm. Um, in fact, they tell me stories um, that at a young age where I have no memory, where I would scream bloody murder if they'd try to put a dress on. So, like, somehow I already yeah. knew. Yeah. 
Um, so I grew up, you know, boy haircuts, boy clothes, boy shoes. And I was born in 1976. So growing up in the 80s, not only was being gay still not really uh, highly accepted, yeah. um, but definitely someone who dressed like a boy was even less accepted. Right. So growing up, I was shamed, ridiculed, judged, bullied, jumped, beaten up. Yeah, you know, say what you want to say. Everyone has their beliefs and everyone has, you know, different different views on it. But it's like, I can't imagine that in any one of those views, anyone would think it's okay for a child to be treated like that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, what it did is a storm started to brew inside. What I heard when all that stuff happened was, you're not enough. You're mm -hmm. not good enough. You're not who you should be. You can be better. You should be different. You can't be what you want to be. Um. And then when I hit about 13, I started to realize, like, people would look at me and think I was a boy. So they would say he, and I'm like, wow, people aren't shaming me. People like me. People mm. aren't staring at me. Girls want my phone number. But that just doubled that lack of self-acceptance because now I'm teaching myself and let others teach me um, that if I was a boy, then it would be okay. Right. And you would like me. Um, and that alone started the whole trajectory of my life. Yeah. And I think on top of that, uh, my parents, again, I always like to say before I ever speak about my parents, um, they also did the best they could. They, you know, they had zero experience raising a little girl that thought she was a boy. <laughs> um, you know, but I had um, a dad who was like, he thought it was so cool because he wanted a son. He would call me his son. He would uh, introduce me as his son. Wow. And then my mom, who just, like a lot of people, were like, well, I don't think you should be wearing that. Honey, girls are supposed to wear this. I mean, I don't remember anyone ever saying, you're not good enough. You can't be this. But I also don't remember anybody ever saying, you can be whatever you want. Right. You can be however you want. It hurts me to think that, um, you know, a, a kid was feeling like that. You said you think that's a lot of probably what contributed to, to using. How quickly did you start using or drinking after, like around that? You said you were 13, kind of mm -hmm. around that time? At 13, I started what I consider my number one drug of choice, which is relationships uh, okay. and women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Pussy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> um, Pink dope. Right, right. <laughs> um. Yeah. Because, you know, I started to learn that young. Like, oh, you think I'm cute? Oh, you think I'm funny? Oh, you think I'm sweet? I must be. Because mm. I didn't know. I yeah. didn't know I was cute. I didn't know I was funny. I didn't know people even liked me because I didn't like myself. Right. I didn't know who I was. From 13 years old until now, I was never single because that's how bad I needed that drug. And what I mean by mm -hmm. that is someone to tell me I was worth it. Oh, yeah. I talk about this because, so when I was 16, if you remember, and a lot of people don't remember, a lot of people do, 714s. That was before my time. Okay. So by the time I hit the scene, people would talk about them. Yeah. But we, I never saw one. Yeah. It's a, a quaalude? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But anyhow, I always talk about it because, so they gave me a little piece of a 714, yeah. and I was 16. So it was the first time I ever put anything into my body. My clean date is 7-14-16. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's wild. After that, I started smoking weed, mm -hmm. um, drinking, um, and then by 19, I was doing coke. And from there, I mean, whatever you had, however I could get it, I was one of those people that went through the whole 
Coke was popular, I'd do that. And then, then acid was popular, I'd do that. Mushrooms were popular, I'd do that. Ecstasy got popular, I did that. I just followed the trend. Yeah. Um, so that was 19, and you had mentioned uh, being dope sick, so I assume that was, you know, heroin or fentanyl or mm-hmm, op- mm-hmm. opiates. When did it um, maybe switch to um, heroin, uh, and then did the trend stop there? That's what I'm curious, because I, I think for, at least for me, it did. Good question. Wow. Never thought about that. You're absolutely right. Uh, I went through withdrawal for the first time and I didn't even know. Yeah. I mean, some one of my buddies just like, dude, you're withdrawal. I'm right. like, what Same are you talking thing. about? Same thing happened to me, yeah. Because uh, it was oxys yeah. is what I was Same doing thing. at that yep. point. And I was um, 30. And then a buddy was like, uh, get you some heroin. I'm like, nah, man, I will never. Right. I, I, no way. Within 24 hours. Like, my legs hurt so bad mm-hmm. that I'm like, whatever. And for the next 10 years, every day, it took all the pain away. Mm-hmm. All that lack of self-acceptance, all that shame, all that guilt got covered up. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I had courage. Mm-hmm. I was outgoing. Mm-hmm. I felt good. Like, oh, I bet this is what I've been missing my whole life. Right. This is what I needed. Yep. Like you a know. better version of myself. Is yes. What, uh, what I thought, yeah. And uh, it's interesting you said that, too, about like not even realizing that you're dope sick because that that same thing happened to me i remember yeah one day i got sick and didn't know what happened and then i was just laying in bed so sick and then a buddy brought over some i did it and i was fine yep i'm like oh instantly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep all right let's move on to the next one um this one you titled a self-centered suicidal beginning Mm. um you know the core of our disease is self-centered fear and um, so a lot of people can relate to that. And then people who don't know a lot about it, I always thought that this was a perfect example. Like I've been asked, like, well, what do you mean self-centered? Like, you know, you're, you're such a good person. How can you? And I said, let me tell you a story. Yeah. So it was uh, May 2015. My stepdad had been, just been diagnosed with brain cancer. He had about six months to live. So I am so self-centered in, in using that on May 28th, uh, my girlfriend had left. Well, it was actually my wife at the time. And um, I want to kill myself. You know, your family's losing the man everyone loves. Like, you can't get go kill yourself right now. Like, <laughs> you got to be here. Like, like it didn't even cross my brain. I was so hurt. Uh, I didn't call anybody. I didn't leave a letter. It was one of those times that I was like, I'm done. Uh, I called my uh, dope boy. I uh, got about $100 worth. I went to John Bryant State Park in Yellow Springs. I went out in the woods and um, did as much as I could and then sat there for a minute, did some more, did it all, you know, by the end. And I'm sitting there for a minute, and I'm like, that's hard to get pissed because I'm like, I'm alive. Like, I'm not dead. This should have killed me. And then I'm like, I'm not even high. I had never been sold bunk stuff like that my mm-hmm. entire life. That was one of the first uh, times I, you know, looking back that I believed in something greater than me. His death and that, thank God, failed suicide attempt um, combined in watching my mom go through what she went through, I believe, you know, was what gave me the desire to say, okay, I'll go to treatment that day. So the problem was I was still maintaining a job that I had private insurance. And it's crazy, yeah. man. I was calling these places, and they're like, yep. we don't take insurance. Only take Medicaid. Like, if you don't have Medicaid, you have to pay cash. And yep. then I'm like, how much is it a week for cash? Because, like, I want to get clean, man. Sure. I don't want to feel this anymore. 
And I think it was like a thousand dollars. And what does my brain say? I can use yeah. cheaper than that. Fuck yeah. So I just kept using. Right. And that's what kept happening. I couldn't yeah. find a treatment center. Yeah. It was, you know, looking back, I'm like, wow, man, that's you know, and I didn't have like fifty thousand right. dollars to put myself in treatment. Yeah, I had the same experience. Um, I had, you know, I had private insurance. I was still employed. And, um, yeah, like I went through the whole process of, like, intake in this place. And then they set a date for me. And I went there, or I called the morning of and said, I'm on my way down. And they said, hold on a second. Somebody needs to talk to you. And they transferred me, like, when when you mentioned United Healthcare, we thought that was UHC with Medicaid. We didn't realize it was private insurance. Unfortunately, we don't accept private insurance, so mm-hmm. you can't come. Like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. So the last uh, the last story that you have is uh, titled "You Died, But My Boundaries Kept Me Alive." Mm. Yeah, I like that you put this one in here because this is my story for recovery. Um, recovery. Yeah. Um, because I think it's important to share about all these things that happen when I'm using um, that I need to keep using because I don't know how to deal with it and I don't know how to deal with my feelings. I don't know what to do with myself. Um, It's important for me to share things um, that we go through in recovery um, just for hope, like, wow, I I can stay clean through this? Mm -hmm. So my dad was an alcoholic. Um, This is your real dad, right? Because your stepdad had already passed away. Yeah. Okay. You know, was in and out of my life. You know, some, like one time I, as a teenager, I knocked on his apartment door in Centerville and he didn't answer. So I looked in the window and the apartment was empty. I mean, he would just kind of disappear. Mm. Um, he wouldn't call for a long time. or He was very, well, he was emotionally abusive and very manipulative. And, and the, that part of it, I just don't think he knew. So what had happened is he, he had been to prison and um, he had tried to commit suicide, I think, like six times. So his family and the people around him started to, you know, walk away from him. And he kept saying the same thing to me, like, um, Britt, thank you for loving me. I'm, I'm so glad you love me. If you ever leave me, I'll kill myself. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that what, the, what that was doing to me and that kind of manipulation. Yeah. Um, so he would say it for years. Uh, so at, when I was 21, I got the first back and answer machines. And I came <laughs> home, um, and my girlfriend's like, uh, I think you need to listen to this message on your on the answer machine. So it was my dad, and I was 21 at the time, and he was like, you know, I'm just calling to tell you goodbye because I'm going to go hang myself from oh a tree. My. So for the next 20 years, that's how it was. So anyhow, I was in treatment, and I'm telling my counselor this and my counselor's like like this has to stop you know I'm like no you don't understand like if I if I walk away from him he'll kill himself you know so my my counselor's trying to explain to me like what does that really look like I'm carrying that and he's trying to help me through that so I didn't speak to my dad the first year at all I was clean I called him on father's day the second year he called and left me a message when I went to treatment Mm -hmm. to tell me he was um you know, disappointed in me because I went to treatment. Mm. So, see, he didn't even understand. He was like, you should have been strong enough, mm. you know. Again, like I'm his son in his yeah. mind. So he's like, you should have been able to be a man. Right. You know, Britt, you got to stand up and be a man. You should not need treatment. I know that used to be the thought. Per- I mean, and still is for some, you know, that masculine, tough guy kind of thing. But it's like, I mean, it, and uh, this is going to sound cliche, but it's like, you know, a real man knows ask for help you know yeah. what I mean that t- that takes way more fucking courage yeah yeah I agree 
the last text I ever received from him that I know about um, was, you're dead to me. Don't ever call me again. And I, and I hit block. And I, I was so proud of myself. Um, so I had set a boundary. I had held the boundary. He didn't respect my boundary. I blocked him, and four days later, he hung himself from a tree. Mm. I get a call from a detective in Kettering. He said, are you Gary's daughter? I said, yes. He said, have you heard? I said, heard what, you know? And he was like, um, he passed away last night. If I had not put in the work and I had not learned how to uh, set boundaries um, and he would have done that, um, I'd have got high. Yeah. And I, and I might have just died right after him. But it's my example and my story of how I stayed clean, man. Yeah. And um, we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's a it's a really private, deep story. Anytime that we talk about like death or suicide like that, I'd just like to take a second and acknowledge it. And um, you have a unique uh, perspective because you have seen, you've experienced addiction, obviously yourself, but then you've seen it in the life life of someone that you love and how it's impacted you, and then ultimately the just the like worst case scenario, you know, is pl- what played out. Um, and you can see how it affected you and probably your family. And, um, you know, if, if anyone's using or drinking and thinking about that that's a way out or that that's a solution, and we can hear firsthand from Brit just the impact that it has on people, especially when, like, the last words that you said to someone may be a fight or maybe an argument or things like that. Well, thank you for sharing that. Like I said, that's... um. It's a, uh, it's a private story, and it takes a lot of courage to, to open up about that, and I appreciate that. A, a lot of these things I've heard before because I've heard you share them in meetings. You know what I mean? And it's like I don't have that courage, but it's like I've seen you in meetings, and you just put it out there. I know it helps you, and it helps you know all of us too. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I'm i a pretty open book. Sometimes I, I think I overshare, no, and I, I'm I over open. So. But I, but I want to say that I heard you lay it all out on the line not too long ago. And, like, now we're sitting at this table together, clean, you yeah, know? that's cool. And that's pretty cool because that's exactly what happened. Like, you put it all out there. Um, I was proud of you that night. Yeah. Um, and here we are. Yeah, yeah, I was struggling, man. I'm glad that uh, there was enough people, you and a couple other people, that were just, like, you know, supportive. Yeah, because, I mean, like I said, you were the first, you were one of three, you were probably the first face when I walked in that room. And so you're not only just, I've just always liked you and I've always like felt an energy with you. Yeah. Um, but that first face you see in Narcotics Anonymous, man, I don't know about anybody else, but that's yeah. stuck with me. Sticks with you. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. And then you were one of the first people I saw when I got back. Yeah. When I, cause I went straight to that Monday night meeting Mike picked me up from the airport, went straight there, and you got up and hugged me. Yeah, yep. yeah. That, that was awesome. awesome. Yep. All right, Britt, thank you so much for coming out here. Uh, thank like you. I tell everyone, you uh, you took time out of your day. We were supposed to do it earlier, but then I kept putting it off later and later. I apologize for that. No biggie, no worries. <laughs> it's like, hey, will you do this for me uh, now? No, wait, in an hour? No, wait, in another <laughs> hour? It's kind of disrespectful, so I'm sorry about that, but thank you so much for coming. It's really an honor. appreciate you. And that's Brit. As I said before, this is definitive proof that we don't have to use no matter what. 
Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. It means the world to me that you took the time to listen, and I appreciate it so, so much.